0: Can it really be a Christmas program without the children singing? And every year, I think there's always the one that waves. You see that right. And then the uh, the bear tummy show, we had that. But I've never seen a necklace quite like that snowflake necklace that was blinking. I always try to pick out, you know, who most like Jesus and who's most like Mary and who's most like Judas and Je- Jezebel. No, actually, I don't do that. Mike, Mike Schindel does, but I'm a, I'm a pastor. I would never do that as your pastor. Uh, Christmas is a time of festivity, feasting, celebration, family. It's good to have family members in from out of town. I've already met some of you. Some of you are like my family and you're in from out of town. Um, It's a time of rejoicing in Christ's first advent. Advent simply means arrival. Jesus came a first time and he's coming a second time, which is the second advent, or we would say the second coming or the second arrival. We live between those two bookends. Paradoxically, though, in a time where we are celebrating joy and hope and peace and love, we are surrounded by people who experience very little of those. Matter of fact, this is a time where a pervasive sense of emptiness and isolation and loneliness is heightened. Because everybody is with family and everybody's with friends and everybody seems to be occupied and we sort of buzz right past those who are trying to numb their pain through drinking or drugging or shopping, not knowing that when that temporary fix wears off, they are hurting. What if I told you and what if we told the world that there is someone who loves you more than you could ever comprehend? And that that same person can give you lasting and real and deep joy, peace, love, and hope. And what if you found out that that person is the very one we've been singing about this morning? I mean, would you be interested in hearing more about him? Because that's what all four Gospels do. Even if you're not in a church regularly, you're probably familiar with the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each is called a Gospel Gospel. And what they do is they introduce to you a person and his name is Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the birth narratives are found in Matthew and Luke. Mark and John don't record birth narratives. And in those, you can read the story about how Jesus was born. About, we call that his incarnation. He was in God, in flesh is simply all that that term means. John 1, which this the, the most previous song that was just sung, talks about. The word becoming flesh. John is actually the one that presents Jesus like that. And here's here's what Christmas is all about. It's really the narrative of one of the greatest miracles in the world. And it is the world's greatest love-motivated rescue mission. It is the greatest deliverance in the world. And people pass by this story and sometimes get more emotional about another Christmas film and fail to realize the power and the love and the hope and the joy and the peace that is in this true story that also has a last chapter and an ending. This is what happened. This is the Christmas story, if I could put it in brief. The creator, God, entered a young woman's womb that he created to become what he creates A human being. Now, why would he do that? God did so to take upon a curse in a human body because, and you know this, the wages of sin is what? Death. And if God is going to take our penalty, if he's going to pay that wage and God can't die, how is he going to do that? He's going to humble himself and he's going to send his son and he's going to take on the form of a human being. He's going to become a human child. He was the age of these children that you saw standing before you at one time. The king of the universe became a six-year-old, was born dependent upon a human mother for the express purpose of growing up to give his human body As a sacrifice for your sin. For my sin. This is Christianity. This is what we mean by Christianity. We don't mean we're just not Muslims or we're just not Hindus or we're just not Jains or Sikhs. Christianity has truth involved connected to a real person who loves you. God's becoming a man through virgin conception is about Christianity. His sacrificial death, the very purpose he came... As a human being, his bodily resurrection after death, according to the exact timing and the prophecies indicated and the offer of complete forgiveness to you and me by grace alone, through faith alone. That's Christianity. If you remove those truths and you remove the person of Christ, you have no Christianity. Christianity is not you were born in country America and you celebrate July 4th and you sing good old fashioned hymns. Christianity is about Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, the life. No one goes unto the Father except through him. I love how, how John presents him. Listen to John's thesis. He really gives you an overview or a thesis statement or a purpose statement to his entire gospel. He says this in John chapter 20. John records, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, which John did not record in his account of the gospel. But these are written, so these specific miracles, these specific signs are put here for this purpose. Listen to the purpose. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, listen to the effect that belief has, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What does John say we should believe? Two things. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Both are descriptions of His person. One tells us who He is, His identity. The other tells us His mission. He is the Messiah. He is sent for this specific purpose. Why should we believe these? John says, these are written. What does these refer to? The signs. And the results of believing that by believing you may have life in His name. Let me just read to you. The the famous prologue in John chapter one, verse one, which was actually sung about, it says this in the beginning was the word. The word is capitalized because it's a proper name and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, don't miss the allusion back to the very first book, the very first words of the first book in our Bibles in the beginning. God created. So don't miss that, because this is what John's going to tell you. A person has come who is God. But you might not recognize him because he's going to be born as a baby. And in this child, in this specific individual, he is going to recreate people and he's going to offer a total new recreation to the world. John is purposely using the wording of Genesis. John 1, 2 to 3. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. So so Jesus is the creator That's what John is saying. Matter of fact, if Jesus is going to create new life in our hearts, if it's going to be so radical that it's called new birth, guess who has to do it? God does. God, the creator, the son, the creator. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1 verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And if you have any troubles identifying who John is talking about, this majestic deity person who is the Word, a spoken Word. By the way, in the beginning, Genesis 1, God said it and it happened. Let there be what? Light and there was. Now you have this human coming on the scene and he is called the Word. He is the spoken Word that gives life. Here's his identity, John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know there's a danger every Christmas season that that we need to be careful we don't fall into, and that is we put Jesus back into the manger. And we surround him with these nativity figures. And we sort of immortalize and in a in a dangerous way sentimentalize him as a baby, forgetting he's not that anymore. That him as a baby was designed for the specific purpose of him offering himself as a sacrificial death. So quickly, what we should believe. Jesus is the son of God. You know, Jesus told Nicodemus this in John 3:16. Most of you know this verse by heart. It's held up at football games, other sporting events. He told Nicodemus that he is God's only son. Jesus claims were understood to be just that a claim to be God in John 5:18, His opponents were furious at him because he said this. Listen to what he says. They said this about him. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And guess what? That accusation is true. He was claiming equality with the father. The Jews later insist in John 19, 7, we have a law and according to the law, he must die because he claimed, listen to this, he claimed to be the son of God. Do you know Jesus was very explicit in what he was saying so that they never misunderstood that he was claiming to be God? Do you know that belief rests, salvation rests on believing this about Jesus? These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ Christ. The son of God, a matter of fact, he says this, he says, I tell you the truth before Abraham was born, I am, you know what the people's response was, they picked up rocks to kill him. Why? Because they thought he was blaspheming by that claim. He says in John 10:30, I and the Father are one. So that's just one part of his identity. The second part, which sometimes slips by us, is this. These are written that you may believe that Jesus, yes, is the Son of God, but also that he is the Christ. That is a title. It's not a last name or a surname. Christ is simply the Greek equivalent of the Messiah term Mashiach or the Hebrew term Mashiach, which means Messiah. God has an anointed one sent to deliver. Messiah simply means deliverer rescuer he is the anointed one to do that specific work he is the christ and as the christ listen to what jesus says in john 3:17 for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world we were already condemned we were already under a curse the old testament you saw some of the readings this morning that made that specifically clear God didn't send his Messiah, his anointed, promised deliverer into the world to further condemn us. Jesus says this, but in order that the world might be saved through him or safe through him. I love what John the Baptist says when he first sees Jesus. By the way, he was the one that, that left in the womb of Elizabeth when Mary came and greeted her. And she says, how is it that the mother of my Lord, even though she was carrying a very special man, John the Baptist, she calls the child in the womb of Mary the, her Lord. John the Baptist, he grows growing up, he sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A sacrificial lamb. That was the very purpose for why he came. Now, why, why should we believe? We're going to fly through these quickly. Here are the signs, seven signs, eight of you include Jesus own resurrection. First sign happens at a wedding. This is important because Jesus is coming to make a new covenant with his people. It's happening at a wedding ceremony covenant where he turns water into wine. Jesus is not interested about beverages. What he is interested in proving and showing to the disciples is that he can transform things miraculously. This is going to be very important when Nicodemus comes in the very next chapter. He's a Pharisee, he's religious, he's wealthy, he's powerful, and he comes and he asks Jesus who he is, really. Or how can I inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says what? Unless you're, what does he say? He says two times, unless you're born again. Well, how is that possible? Go back to the, go back to the previous chapter, the first sign. He can transform things. matter of fact, he can transform souls. After transforming the water into the wine, it says that his disciples believed on him then, Nicodemus comes and asks, and there's the second sign, which is in chapter four, given to a Samaritan woman at the well. She has a checkered history. She has a horrible past. She's sitting there alone, and Jesus engages her as he always does with people who are broken and in need. She says this, or he asks her, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water. So the reader's asking, is it really that simple that we can get this new life, this transformation, just for asking? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Go to the third sign. There's somebody trying to get into the water to be healed. He misses his opportunity. He hears the voice of God. He's cleansed and washed ceremonially. He's saved just for the asking. It all has to do with water and faith and healing. And in 522, Jesus tells him, yes, you heard my voice, but a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. So he's, he's still pointing forward. That's what signs do. Signs point you to something. So you have the transformation of water to wine. You have Nicodemus asking, how shall I inherit this gift? New birth. Then you have in in the the second sign in in John chapter four, where you can get this just for the asking. Would you please give me the water of life? You have somebody who misses this opportunity to get into real water, meets the water of life and is saved. And signs four and five are these. The feeding of the five thousand and Jesus walking on water. We're going to fly by those, but I'm going to give you one statement sort of the teaching that hinges on those two miracles. And Jesus says this, because I want you to hear this, because it's shocking. Okay, he feeds, he feeds 5,000 plus miraculously. He walks on water miraculously. He gives a sermon and he asks, or he says this, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Just, that's what the scripture says. Jesus is the bread of heaven. He's already been teaching that he already showed that even in the wilderness, he can sustain more than five thousand people by his word. He walks on water. His, His disciples think there's a ghost. They bow down. And Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. This is what he's teaching that Jesus can provide sustenance that is life transforming and salvation can only be granted by Him. Sign six, it's connected to the light of the world. He heals a blind person. Do you know if your heart is dark? Do you know if your emotions are jaded? Do you know if you're overwhelmed by the guilt of your own sin? Do you know if you're not even seeking? As a matter of fact, Romans says no one seeks for God. He can open your eyes. And he can pierce through the moral depravity of your heart and open your eyes to the goodness of Jesus Christ. Jesus says this, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He validates that by healing the blind man. Seventh sign. Last one. Lazarus dies. He really dies. And Jesus goes and he says what? Lazarus, come forth. See, we've seen his power over demons. We've seen his power over sickness. We've seen his power over nature. Now we see his power over the thing we fear the most, and that is death. Why, if he could raise Lazarus from the dead, would he die? Why couldn't he prevent his own death? And Jesus is going to answer that for us. Listen to what he says. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. That's an important statement because you can can be assured of this. Jesus' death was no accident. It was on purpose to save people from their sin. So why should we believe? It's what the miracles point to. And here's the results of believing. That by believing, you may have life in his name. Let me just read to you one, one verse out of John 5. Jesus says this. Just... Try to hear him saying this to you. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. He says in John 10:10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You got two people, Nicodemus. He was saved. You have Thomas. He doubted. But even as a skeptic, and some of you here in this morning, because I interact with you, you're skeptics in your heart. You know what the believing response of a skeptic is, is when Jesus comes to you and reveals himself to you like he did with Thomas. And and Thomas says, I will never believe unless I put my fingers in the nail prints of his hands. And Jesus offers that objective proof. And Thomas says what? My Lord and my God. He believed. That's the, the appropriate response of a skeptic to the claims and to the person Of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'm going to invite the music team forward. I'm going to pray before we sing our final two songs together. And I just want to ask you this. Do you believe You know, conversion has a lot more to do with than just knowledge. Some of you are so doctrinally accurate, it's scary. But do you know Jesus as a person? You know what Jesus had to tell the Pharisees one time? You believe the words, but you don't believe in me. It's the words that tell the world who I am. It's possible to be scriptural. It's possible to be non-Hindu, non-Muslim, non-whatever, to be culturally Christian and not be born again. Do you believe this morning? Let me ask you the second question. Would you believe if God is granting you the gift of conviction in your heart over the sin of unbelief? Would you just confess Him as Lord and Savior? These are written that you may believe that Jesus is who? The Son of God. And believe what He came to do? Messiah, anointed one, He came to die in your place for your sin, to pay for the wages of your sin, which is death, which you can never pay for. But Jesus Christ can. Let's pray.